Hello, from Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. We've always been intrigued by stories of disappearances, whether it's a fraudster from the 17th century who kept evading the authorities or a novelist who taunted the Nazis and faked her own death. We all want to know what happened next. To find out, listen to Womanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Nine Days in July is a production of iHeartRadio and Tradecraft Studios in association with High Five Content. Okay, all flight controllers, go, no, go for power descent. Retro? Go. Fido? Go. Guidance? Go. Control? Go. Telcom? Go. GNC? Go. Econ? Go. Surgeon? Go. Capcom, we're go for power descent. Eagle, Houston, if you read your go for power descent, over. Roger, copy. You think you know this story. Our translation for good. Pilot couple on. Carry throttle minimum. But you don't. Throttle auto, CDR. Up button reset. Stop button. Abort, abort, stage, reset. Program alarm. 1202. 1202. Give us a reading on the 1202 program alarm. 1,000 feet. Into the ag. 47 degrees. Our position check down range shows to be a little off. Loading down. Pretty rocky area. 100 feet down at 19. 600 feet. They're 400 feet down at 9. Cape forward. 400 feet. 200 feet down 3.5. 47 If the astronauts inside the lunar module are unable to reach the moon's surface, years of training, billions of dollars, and the hopes and dreams of an entire planet were for nothing. Okay, the only call-outs from now on will be fuel. 60. 60 seconds. 30 feet, two and a half down, drifting to the right level. There is zero margin for error. One miscalculation could cost them their lives. 30. 30 seconds. So much of the Apollo 11 story you've heard is the exact same moments, recycled and repeated over and over again. But not here. This time, you are going to hear the stories behind the stories, the ones you've never heard. For the next nine hours, we are going to stow away aboard a tin can soaring through space at 24,000 miles an hour. We're also going to go behind the consoles of Mission Control to meet the unsung heroes, the men and women who didn't make the headlines, but whose stories deserve to be told. And we'll be returning to Earth to look into what was happening while Apollo 11 raced to the moon and how everything stopped cold when the Eagle touched down. Using never-before-heard mission audio, I'm going to tell you the story of Apollo 11 as it unfolded day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute. This was one of the most tumultuous eras in American history. The profoundly unpopular Vietnam War was raging on without an end in sight. To say that we are mired in stalemate seems the only realistic, if unsatisfactory, conclusion. Back home, civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr. and the presumptive Democratic nominee for President of the United States, Robert F. Kennedy, were assassinated. Very sad news for all of you, and that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight. At the Democratic National Convention, thousands of demonstrators clashed violently with police. 
National Guardsmen pushed the Yippee uh, and uh, anti-war demonstrators back a half a block or so from the hotel area. On top of all of this, the United States was embroiled in a Cold War with its ideological nemesis, the Soviet Union. Nuclear-tipped violence seemed to be just one thoughtless mistake away. Freedom has many difficulties, and democracy is not perfect. But we have never had to put a wall up to keep our people in. Smack in the middle of this is the proxy war of a lifetime, the race for space. Apollo 11 is about more than putting a man on the moon. Hanging in the balance is the national pride and global grandstanding of two superpowers on the brink of war. For many who lived through this era, the United States seemed to be coming apart at the seams. Not since the Civil War had the country felt more divided or more angry. Never had our democracy felt more brittle or imperiled. Sound familiar? America needed a miracle. We needed a reason to reach for a greatness beyond our misfortunes. We needed Apollo 11. No pressure, right? I'm Brandon Fibbs. I'm a science documentary producer and journalist. Before that, my office was the cockpit of an S-3 Viking jet aircraft. And my job was to hunt submarines for the United States Navy. I invite you to join me as we embark on one of the most thrilling adventures any human has ever undertaken. This is Nine Days in July. At exactly 4.15 on the morning of July 16, 1969, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins wake in their living quarters at NASA's Kennedy Space Center in Florida. This is Apollo Saturn launch control. All elements of the countdown for Apollo 11 proceeding satisfactorily at this time. The crew is described as appearing to be rested, fit as a fiddle, and ready to go. More than 1,000 miles away, at Mission Control in Houston, Texas, two dozen flight controllers are powering up their equipment. Apollo 11 lifts off the pad in a little over four hours. This is the calm before the storm. The rest of America is still fast asleep, including the astronauts' families, though I suspect the night has not been especially considerate to the astronauts' wives. It's time to make history. Today is the day Apollo 11 leaves for the moon. Neil, Buzz, and Michael have a quick breakfast before reporting to the suit-up room, where a small army of technicians is waiting to help them into their spacesuits basically a spaceship shaped like a human being. Once the astronauts are sealed in, they are attached to portable cases delivering pure oxygen. And just like that, Neil, Buzz, and Michael will not breathe outside air or hear another human voice that is not coming through a speaker for the next nine days. Back in Houston, Gene Krantz is already awake. I have this incredibly spectacular I mean, just absolute deep sleep. No dreams, no worries, no nothing. But now he's pacing the house like a caged animal. You got all this energy, and you don't have anything to do with it. You got no focus, and you can't sleep. Heck, we had six kids, and, you know, Marta's trying to figure out some way. Oh, Gene, when are you going to settle down? When are you going to sleep? Gene's wife pushes him out the door. Gene is one of four flight directors for Apollo 11, meaning the weight of the entire mission rests on his shoulders. While he's not on duty this morning, he still wants to be in mission control when Apollo 11 lifts off. Traditionally, all flight directors show up in there and you find a place to sit near three or four deep. Every console is three or four deep. Nobody's going to miss the launch for the first lunar landing mission. Nobody. You know Gene Kranz, even if you don't realize it. If you saw the film Apollo 13, he was the one played by Ed Harris. You know, the failure is not an option guy the guy whose wife made him a new vest for every mission. The way I pump myself up each time I get ready to do something, stars and traps. John Phillips's, I got probably 30, 40 records, tapes. And at this time also, we had eight track recorders, so I had them in the car. It was every place I'd go, I'd have John Phillips's. And this is the way I get uh, uh, up to speed, get the energy, get the adrenaline flowing. At around 6.30 a.m. Florida time, Neil, Buzz, and Michael wave to the gathered guests, press, and other NASA employees and climb aboard a van for a short trip to the launch pad eight miles away. As they draw closer, 
They can see their Saturn V bathed in giant xenon lights, the tallest, heaviest, and most powerful rocket ever created. Normally, Launchpad 39A is a beehive of activity and equipment, but today it is eerily deserted. The weather is perfect, with only a light breeze from the southeast, and temperatures are already climbing into the mid-80s. Jim Lovell was the backup commander for Apollo 11. He flew to space on the Saturn V twice, aboard Apollo 8 and Apollo 13. When we got off the vehicle, I started to walk up to the elevator to go up to uh, where we were to get inside the spacecraft. It was one of apprehension to the fact that this vehicle is sitting here with five and a half million pounds of high explosives, liquid oxygen, liquid hydrogen, you know, anything happened, you know, <laughs> we'd be history. The astronauts board the elevator and begin ascending to the top of the rocket. Though they have yet to blast off, the astronauts have already left the Earth. The Saturn V rushing past them is an engineering marvel. At 363 feet, it is 60 feet taller than the Statue of Liberty. It carries more than 6 million pounds of rocket fuel and weighs as much as 400 elephants. This is Apollo Saturn Launch Control. At this time, the prime crew for Apollo 11 has boarded the high-speed elevator from inside the A-level in the mobile launcher. That's Jack King. He's a NASA public affairs officer. You're going to be hearing a lot from NASA's PAOs this series. It was their job during the mission to explain what was going on to the public. This is a high-speed elevator, 600 feet per minute, which will carry them to the 320-foot level, uh, the spacecraft level. Dick Gordon went to space on Apollo 12. As he looked down at the Saturn V on launch day, it suddenly hit him. Say, hey, this is real. That beast below us, that Saturn V, is a living, breathing object. It's uh, venting vapors and ice is falling off of it, and uh, it's a creature that's just about to come alive. The Saturn V consists of three stages, basically just gas tanks with engines. On the tippy top is a needle-like structure. That's the launch escape tower. It's there to yank the astronauts free in the event of an emergency during launch. Directly beneath the tower is a metallic gumdrop. That's the command module. That's what our astronauts will spend the next nine days in. The cylindrical section just beneath it is the service module. So where's the lunar module, the spidery-looking moonship that will actually make the voyage to the surface of the moon? That's hidden away inside of a compartment on top of the third stage. Remember this configuration, because it will become very important in a couple of minutes. Uh, shortly, uh, we'll expect astronauts Neil Armstrong and Michael Collins to come across swing arm nine, the Apollo access arm, and proceed to the white room and uh, stand by to board the spacecraft. The PAO only mentions Neil and Michael because two flights below their final destination, the elevator pauses for Buzz to step off. The loading area above is simply too small to accommodate everyone at once. As the elevator pulls away, Buzz welcomes the chance to steal a couple contemplative moments. In the distance, he can see numerous campfires flickering on the beaches, spectators who have been camping out for days. He can see the vehicle assembly building, where the Saturn V's pieces were mated together. By area, it is one of the largest buildings in the world. Its four walls enclose eight full acres, and on humid Florida days, rain clouds have been known to form inside the one-story building. Once it was complete, the Saturn V was perched on top of the Crawler Transporter, a vehicle the size of a baseball infield, which began the slow process of moving to Launch Pad 39A at one mile an hour. Jim Lovell recalls pausing on the gantry as the enormity of what he was about to do sunk in. I had a few moments to look down, and there I saw the lights of the press people going into their press sites to get set up to watch the launch, and I thought, we're going to the moon. I mean, all this training and all this navigation training and everything else, you know, I just took it as part of an everyday type of work thing, but not for, sort of forgetting where I was going. And uh, it was suddenly the realization said, hey, they're serious about this. <laughs> the spacecraft commander, Neil Armstrong, and the command module pilot, Michael Collins now proceeding across the swing arm into the small white room that attaches at the spacecraft level. At just shy of 7 a.m., Neil climbs off the elevator and enters the white room, the space connecting the Saturn V to the support structure. The unchallenged lord of the white room is pad leader Gunther Vent. 
Bespeckled and bow-tied, the rail-thin Gunter is responsible for the Saturn V from the moment it arrives at the pad till the moment he seals the astronauts inside their capsule. The astronauts consider him to be a good luck charm. They never want to fly without Der Padfuhrer, a nickname given to Gunter by Mercury astronaut John Glenn. You heard that right, Der Padfuhrer. During World War II, Gunter was a flight engineer for the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force. He immigrated to America after the war, where he found work in the burgeoning space program. If it seems peculiar that a former Nazi is enmeshed at such a high level in the U.S. space program, gird your loins. Gunter is one of nearly 2,000 ex-Nazis on NASA's payroll. How the hell did that happen? We'll get back to that. Neil grabs the handrail and swings himself inside the command module. It's roughly the size of a Subaru Outback. He takes his position at the left of the capsule, the place reserved for the mission commander. The spacecraft commander, Neil Armstrong, now aboard the Apollo 11 spacecraft at the 320-foot level at the pad. STC, loud and clear. Good morning, Neil. Good morning. Welcome aboard. Like a good morning. Michael, the command module pilot, takes his seat on the right. Eventually, Buzz is called up and drops into the center seat for the lunar module pilot. The gang's all here. Though he once served in the Navy, Neil is a civilian now and a former test pilot. The other two are officers of the U.S. Air Force. Each of the men was born in 1930. Each weighs 165 pounds, and each are within an inch of the same height, 5 feet, 11 inches. Neil is the quintessential calm, cool, and collected personality. He is unruffled, unassuming, and always laser-focused. He never opens his mouth unless he has something important to say. The primary objective is is the ability to uh, demonstrate that man, mankind, in fact, can do this kind of a job. Buzz couldn't be more different. He is blunt and opinionated. Luckily, his abrasive opinions are backed up by one of the greatest brains at NASA. Uh, we certainly have the utmost confidence of uh, total success. Michael is the peacemaker. He once called Neil and Buzz amiable strangers. No one remembers Michael. He didn't walk on the moon, and so history has declared him Apollo 11's official third wheel. But he was the glue, the fun one, witty, lighthearted, and quick with a joke. I'm going 99.9 some percent of the way there, and that suits me just fine. These guys weren't friends. They definitely weren't getting beers after work, but they were pros with a job to do. Together, they are about to crack history wide open. At the 320-foot level, all three astronauts now aboard the spacecraft. Gunter and his technicians strap the astronauts in, disengage their portable oxygen, and begin hooking them up to the ship's internal life support system and communications. Neil gives the thumbs up, and the White Room team seals the hatch. At this time, we're just in the process of closing the hatch on the Apollo 11 spacecraft. The astronauts are now cut off from all human contact. They won't see another person for the next nine days. For the next two and a half hours, the astronauts run through checklists. At this point in the countdown, spacecraft commander Neil Armstrong uh, once again appears to be the busiest worker in the spacecraft as he's performing a series of alignment checks associated with a guidance system in the spacecraft. The astronauts are subdued, working inside the tunnel vision of their training. But Michael steals a moment of self-reflection. As the only one not descending to the moon's surface, he realizes that the odds of him getting back in one piece are far better than the two men flanking him. We're now coming up from a 10 minute mark, 10 minutes away from our planned liftoff. Mark. The access arm retracts. The men in the capsule feel a jolt. In Houston, mission control is a beehive of activity. Seconds after Apollo 11 takes flight, the men and women in this building will take over responsibility of the rocket from the launch center in Florida. Gene Kranz is sitting in the back. He catches sight of Cliff Charlesworth, the flight director for the launch. Charlesworth is the conductor, choreographing a room of finely tuned instruments. Charlesworth calls for the room's attention. It's time to get a go, no go for launch. Okay, all flight controllers coming up on auto sequence. Booster, how you? Where you go? Go flight. Go flight. Go flight. Go flight. Control. Network, you got it out? Got it all? Everything up? That's probably flight. Okay. Tony, I'm clear. Apollo 11, this is the launch operations manager. The launch team wishes you good luck and Godspeed. Uh, thank you very much. No, it'll be a good one. When the countdown clock reaches T-minus nine minutes, Charlesworth orders the doors to mission control locked. Gene bows his head in silent prayer. Three and a half miles away, 
minimum safe distance from the launch pad, the grandstands are packed with invited guests and dignitaries. 3,000 newsmen from 56 countries stand by to file the day's story. Oh, I think it's really a great event for a man from just our planet, not just the United States, to get on a, be, actually be on another world. Along miles of gridlock roads, bridges, sand flats, and beaches, more than a million spectators hold their breath. Janet Armstrong, Neil's wife, and their sons, Mark and Ricky, have escaped the crush of onlookers and snooping press by sleeping aboard a small yacht floating in the Banana River. Unsurprisingly, Janet didn't get a wink of sleep last night. Pat Collins and Joan Aldrin watched from the privacy of their homes, glued to their television sets like an estimated 530 million people across the globe. Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, Mike Collins will make the flight of Apollo 11. Let's take a look at their activities beginning last night uh, at dinner. Andy Aldrin, Buzz's youngest, remembers the morning well. I was home with mom, which kind of annoyed me. I wanted to be at the launch. And mom told me that we couldn't go to the launch because NASA didn't want us there because if something happened, they think it would just be really horrible for the family to be on camera with you know, a, a national tragedy. It would be decades before Andy would discover the truth. NASA had no problem with them being there. Pat Collins and his mother were merely trying to guard their privacy and brittle emotions in case something went catastrophically wrong. I've seen pictures of my mom during that time and she's clearly very, very anxious, but I didn't notice it at the time. The only place on Earth where people are not sitting in front of their television sets is the Soviet bloc. There, on the other side of the planet, the workday is coming to a close just like any other day. Apollo 11 will not be televised. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello. From Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. This month, we're bringing you the stories of disappearing acts. There's the 17th century fraudster who convinced men she was a German princess. The 1950s folk singer who literally drove off into the sunset and was never heard from again. The First Nations activist whose kidnapping and murder ignited decades of discourse about indigenous women's disappearances. And the young daughter of a Russian czar whose legendary escape led to even more intrigue and speculation. These stories make us consider what it means to disappear and why a woman might even want to make herself scarce. Listen to Amanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
everything, all the years of research, testing, training, and even the deaths of beloved colleagues has led to this moment. T-minus one minute, 35 seconds on the Apollo mission, the flight to land of the first men on the moon. All indications uh, coming in uh, to the control center at this time indicate we are go. Sure has been a nice smooth count, Oscar. Neil Armstrong just reported back it's been a real smooth countdown. We passed the 50-second mark. Power transfer is complete. We're on internal power with the launch vehicle at this time. It is feels good. Astronauts report it feels good. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Jim Lovell paints the scene inside the command module. Before the liftoff, we could start to hear things happen. You know, maybe with uh, five or six seconds to go, we hear the rumbling of the fuel starting to flow down into the engine. At 9.32 a.m., the Saturn V's engines ignite. The vehicle pours out flame, building thrust, but it doesn't move. Hold-down lamps keep it in place. And when the engines ignite before the liftoff, there's a tremendous roar, roar and the spacecraft is shaking back and forth. Uh, and uh, you're just sitting there, hoping that everything works okay. Six, five, four, three, Two, one, zero, all engine running. At zero, explosive bolts release the vehicle. You might think it erupts off the pad, but it doesn't. This is the point at which gravity is the strongest and the ship is the heaviest. Walter Cunningham, who flew aboard Apollo 7. It's not a sudden acceleration. It's not like a cat shot on an aircraft carrier. I mean, that is like that, and you see spots in front of your eyes. With this, you're starting off at zero velocity, and it's just a slow building. It's like a train behind you that's just building up. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Out on her boat, Janet Armstrong tightly clutches her son, Ricky, as her husband's rocket emerges from the roiling smoke and flames. Tower cleared. Roger, we got a roll program. Roger Armstrong reporting the roll and pitch program, which puts Apollo 11 on a proper heading. That's Neil, letting everyone know that the Saturn V is clear of the tower and angling itself to its proper heading. The other voice you hear is astronaut Bruce McCandless at the Capcom, or capsule communicator position, in Mission Control. Bill Anders flew on Apollo 8 and remembers his launch like it was yesterday. We had simulated essentially everything we could think of, and yet the very first seconds of the flight were a total surprise to everybody. I mean, violent sideways movement and massive noise. Thomas Mattingly, Apollo 16. Launch in Apollo was really dramatic. It feels just like it sounds. It's shaking and banging and, and pushing hard. And it's, there is no doubt that something really gigantic is going on. Neil's left hand is wrapped around the abort handle. One quick twist would activate the launch escape tower and lift the command module free from the Saturn V assuming he even knows there's a problem. Bill Anders recalls that the first phase of the ascent was so noisy, it was impossible to communicate with the men sitting right next to him. Had there been a need to abort detected on my instruments, I could not have relayed that. Michael wonders how the headlines will read tomorrow if Neil accidentally rotates that abort handle. Moonshot falls into ocean. Last transmission from Armstrong was, oops. Altitude's two miles. Oh, Ellen Houston, you're good at one minute. <laughs> Downrange one mile, altitude three, four miles now. Velocity 2,195 feet per second. We're through the region of maximum dynamic pressure now. Maximum dynamic pressure is the point at which the Saturn V is under the greatest amount of physical stress as it attempts to smash its way through the densest part of the atmosphere. Bill Anders. As we burned out on the first stage, we were hitting about, I don't know, six or eight G's. You're back in your seat hardly lift your arms. You uh, have trouble breathing. To try to reach up is like you had a 20-pound weight in your hand. The first stage of the Saturn V rocket is made up of five clustered F-1 engines. These are the largest, most powerful rocket engines ever designed. The nozzles are so large that the Apollo 11 spacecraft can fit inside them. Each one weighs more than nine tons and produces 7.5 million pounds of thrust. How much is that? It's equivalent to roughly 30 747 jumbo jets, pumping out more power than 85 Hoover dams. In the two minutes of their use, they gobble up 20 tons of fuel per second. When they're done, 
the Saturn V will have gone from a dead stop to 15 times faster than the speed of a rifle bullet. And it will achieve that speed while carrying 130 tons, about as much weight as 10 full school buses. Think of the Saturn V's three stages as a relay race. One runner circles the track, and when they get back to the point at which they began, they hand the baton off to another teammate who carries it from there. That's also how the Saturn V gets its payload into orbit. Apollo 11, this is Houston. You are go for staging. Inboard cutoff. Inboard engines out. Confirm inboard cutoff. A couple of the first stage's engines begin to shut down. The higher the Saturn V goes, the less Earth's gravity is working against it. The mass of the vehicle is now dropping by more than 13 metric tons per second. If it keeps accelerating at the same speed that was necessary to get it off the ground, it is going to overshoot its intended orbit and fling the crew into deep space. Downrange 35 miles, 30 miles high. Standing by for the outboard engine cut down now. Just two minutes and 42 seconds after launch, the Saturn's first stage shuts down completely. Apollo 8's Bill Anders. Then the engines cut off. You go from a plus 6G to a minus 110th. I felt like I was going to be catapulted right through that instrument panel. Explosive charges detonate, severing the two stages. The first stage tumbles back toward the planet. Half a second later, at just shy of 9.05 a.m., the second stage engines ignite. They will fire for six minutes, elevating the payload to more than 100 miles in altitude. The spacecraft is currently traveling at more than 6,300 miles per hour. This is the point at which the G-forces are the greatest. The astronauts are nearly four times heavier than their normal weight. Tower's gone. Roger, tower. Neil Armstrong confirming both the engine skirt separation and the launch escape tower separation. Houston, be advised the visual is go today. This is Houston, Roger out. Yeah, they finally gave me a window to look at. That last voice you heard was Michael. While Neil and Buzz both have their own windows, the launch escape tower blocked Michael's view. He is finally getting his first look outside the ship. Downrange 270 miles, altitude 82 miles, velocity 12,472 feet per second. The second stage is done. At nine minutes and nine seconds, it is jettisoned and falls back to Earth. For the first time, the astronauts taste weightlessness. At 9.14 a.m., the third and final stage comes to life gently pushing them back into their couches. Apollo 11, this is Houston. You are confirmed to go for orbit. Go velocity insertion 25,568 feet per second. Apollo 11, this is Houston. The booster has been configured for orbital coast. Both spacecraft are looking good, over. The third stage blasts what remains of the Saturn V into a 103 nautical mile high Earth orbit. Do you remember playing tag as a kid? Think of orbit as base. It's a safe place where the astronauts can hang out for a while. If something didn't work right, they can turn around and head home. But if everything went according to plan, they finally have a chance to catch their breath. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello. From Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. This month, we're bringing you the stories of disappearing acts. 
there's the 17th century fraudster who convinced men she was a German princess. The 1950s folk singer who literally drove off into the sunset and was never heard from again. The First Nations activist whose kidnapping and murder ignited decades of discourse about indigenous women's disappearances. And the young daughter of a Russian czar whose legendary escape led to even more intrigue and speculation. These stories make us consider what it means to disappear and why a woman might even want to make herself scarce. Listen to Amanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Apollo 11 will now circle the Earth one and a half times. The third stage remains. Its job is not yet done. The crew remove their helmets and gloves and unbuckle from their restraints. The pressures of gravity have lifted. They begin to levitate euphorically in microgravity and begin unstowing and checking their equipment. Michael decides that Buzz should take some pictures. Ever since Wally Schirra bought his own Hasselblad from a local Houston camera shop, and used it to take the first pictures from space aboard Mercury 8, the Swedish company has been manufacturing cameras for NASA. They had to be as light, as small, and as rugged as possible. Plus, they had to work in the vacuum of space and in temperatures as high as 248 degrees Fahrenheit in the sun and negative 80 degrees Fahrenheit in the shade. And we are in the dark now. That was Neil. The astronauts find themselves on the dark side of the Earth, lost in the planet's shadow. They move cautiously about the cabin. It takes a while for the inner ear to acclimate to microgravity. Rapid movements reduce even the most iron-stomached veteran to a nauseous mess. Jesus Christ, look at that horizon. Isn't that something? God damn it. That's real. I forgot. I picture that. Sure, I will. There's just one problem. They can't find the camera. Oh, I've lost the half of that. Anybody seen a Hasselblad floating by? Uh, it's too late for sunrise. Anyway. <laughs> I know, but I'm worried about get it before TLI. TLI is Translunar Injection. This is the upcoming burn, which is going to propel the spacecraft out of Earth orbit and toward the moon. The vehicle's acceleration will impart 1.5 Gs, and anything not secured inside the cabin, like a camera, becomes a potentially deadly projectile. Ah, uh, here it is. Sign it? Yeah, here it is. Clearly, the guys are having fun with the camera. Michael is spoofing Cecil B. DeMille, the legendary film director of The Greatest Show on Earth and The Ten Commandments. Uh, Houston, Apollo uh, 11 is ready to uh, go ahead with the, uh, the docking probe and uh, ready to go with the RCS hot fire when you're ready to monitor. Roger, go ahead with the probe now. Roger. Remember when I told you to keep in mind how everything on top of the Saturn V was configured? Here's why. After Apollo 11 initiates the coming translunar injection, they will undertake one of the single most difficult and dangerous elements of the entire mission. The command service module will separate from the third stage, make a U-turn, dock with the lunar module, and pull it out. Apollo 11, this is Houston. Uh, slightly less than one minute to ignition. Ignition. We confirm ignition and the thrust is go. Two hours and 44 minutes into their mission, at 11.46 a.m. Houston time, Apollo 11 is finally on its way. Fairly smooth ride, you know, it's just a little tiny bit rattling. Here comes the old sun. Gee, that's going to be bright. Okay, six. Okay, about five seconds to nominal time. There we go. Wheel cut off. 
maximum velocity 35,000. We have had uh, TLI cutoff. Altitude 77 nautical miles. That's more than 24,000 miles an hour. More than enough to escape the Earth's gravitational field. Yeah, Houston, uh, Apollo 11 and Saturn gave us a magnificent ride. Uh, Roger, 11, we'll pass that on, and it certainly looks like you're well on your way now. Uh, we have no complaints with any of the three stages uh, on that, that ride. It was uh, beautiful. Michael glances out the window at Earth. The launch day crowd is probably still stuck in bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic trying to get home, he thinks. On the yacht where Janet Armstrong and her kids are hiding out from the press, no champagne bottles have been popped. According to Neil's wife, there will be no celebrating until her husband is back home. Apollo 11, this is Houston, uh, your go for separation. It's time to separate the command module from the Saturn V and retract the lunar module. Shortly after noon in Houston, Michael takes over the controls. Here we go. Hey, Houston, we're about to set. Testing. Yep. Explosive bolts free the command service module from the Saturn V's third stage. Expertly, Michael uses short thruster bursts to ease the spacecraft forward. Tucked beneath and behind it, hidden inside the third stage garage, rests the lunar module, its spider-like legs tucked tight to its body. We confirm the separation here on the ground. Michael guides the command service module out to a distance of 100 or so feet and rotates it around so that the CSM's docking port is aligned with that of the lunar module. Michael uses thrusters to slowly close that distance. Neil and Buzz help him sight navigate. Can you see? No, I don't see. He's a little bit to our right. I see. They are now looking directly at the top of the lunar module. To Michael, the docking port looks like a malevolent black eye. Four conical shroud panels, which protected the lunar module during launch, peel away like the opening petals of a flower. The moonship, dubbed the Eagle, begins to gleam in the sunlight. All right. Jeez, we're almost unbelievable. Beautiful. It really looks nice, doesn't it? It's time to see if the hundreds of hours Michael spent alone in the command module trainer, preparing for just this moment, pay off. If he can't get the lunar module out, their moonshot is over before it begins. They were closing at a leisurely fast. He must maintain a steady and slow rate of speed. Too fast, and they'll have a head-on collision, likely damaging or destroying both craft. As they nuzzle ever closer, the command module's thrusters cause the Eagle's metallic skin to ripple. The command service module's probe slides into the Eagle's docking port, and three latches snap closed. Michael has done it. Yeah, that wasn't smooth as docking, I hate Yeah, it felt good from here. Next, Michael must reverse, plucking the lunar module free. Houston, we're ready for lamb ejection. Uh, Roger, go for a lamb ejection. Thank you. Apollo 11 is now a complete spacecraft. And all of this took barely more than four hours from their launch. The Saturn V's job is now complete. This is Apollo Control at four hours, 34 minutes. We're about five minutes away from the evasive maneuver. That will ensure uh, there will be no problems of recontact between the spacecraft and the S-4B stage of the launch vehicle. What's left of the Saturn V is now too far from Earth to fall back and burn up on re-entry. And it's also too close for comfort. 11, uh, Houston, your systems are looking good. We're standing by for the burn. Apollo 11 sends a command of the third stage to jettison all of its remaining fuel. In space, any kind of ejection acts as a propulsive force. Venting the fuel sends the third stage tumbling away from the astronauts. It will ultimately be thrown into an orbit around the sun, and it remains there to this day. And just like that, the astronauts can finally relax. They peel themselves out of their bulky spacesuits, a difficult task considering they're trapped inside a capsule the size of a station wagon. Eventually, they ease into white two-piece nylon jumpsuits. Suddenly cabin feels much larger. Back at Mission Control, Gene Krantz and his white team are relieving Cliff Charlesworth and his green team. Gene is anxious to get into the flight director chair and start his shift. It's here that he feels most at home. Hello, Apollo 11, uh, Houston. Be advised, your friendly white team has uh, come on through his first shift. Uh, we can be of uh, service. Don't hesitate to call. That was Charlie Duke. He's taking over Bruce McCandless's Capcom seat for the shift. Neil wants to know if Mission Control would like some video of the view outside their windows. Neil, anytime you want to turn it on, we're ready, over. 
As was so often the case, seeing our marbled blue and white globe made a profound impression. The astronauts were all struck both by how imaginary our planet's borders are and how fragile it seemed. Everything tearing the Earth apart, wars, protests, and assassinations are invisible from Apollo 11's lofty vantage point. Apollo 12's Dick Gordon said, We have been asked a lot, what have we discovered when we went to the moon? Collectively, I should say that, we discovered the Earth. A very delicate planet sitting out there in the blackest, it's the blackest black you'll ever see. It's just devoid of any color whatsoever. And it's been described like a Christmas tree ornament hanging out there. Oh, Apollo 11, Houston, you can terminate TV at your convenience. We've got enough tape. Uh, Roger, Charlie. Their job done. The crew decides to begin their sleep period a couple hours early. They've earned it. At 8 p.m. in Houston, the rest of America isn't far behind. In mission control, Gene and his white team settle in for a quiet night of monitoring Apollo 11 as it races silently toward destiny. This is Apollo Control. At 14 hours, six minutes into the flight of Apollo 11, the mission is progressing very smoothly. All spacecraft systems are functioning normally at this time. And the flight surgeon reports that all three crewmen appear to be sleeping. At the present time, Apollo 11 is 66,554 nautical miles from Earth and traveling at a speed of about 7,095 feet per second which would be about uh, 4,800 miles an hour. Throughout the history of our species, humankind has always been driven by an innate desire to explore, to see what is outside the cave, over the mountain, across the ocean. Civilization was spread under the sails of ancient sailing ships. The age of exploration pushed back the frontiers of the then known world and traced the shape of the planet's contours. Later expeditions crossed continents, braved oceans of ice to find the North and South Poles, and later still, tamed the skies in aircraft that could outrun sound. Compared to every other expedition undertaken throughout the sweep of human history, all pale in comparison to the enormity of Apollo 11. Either Neil Buzz and Michael will die reaching for something unprecedented in the 200,000 years of modern human history, or they will triumph and cement their names in eternity. Before they left for the moon, a reporter asked Neil Armstrong to lay odds on their success. He stopped to think about the answer for several long seconds before replying, 50-50. The odds that he and his colleagues succeed in touching down on the moon in four days is equal to the odds that none of them ever see Earth or their loved ones ever again. There is still so much that could go wrong. Day one is over. Day two, July 17th, the crew's first full day in space begins with our next episode. We're going to jump back in time to learn who Neil, Buzz, and Michael are and exactly what happened in their lives to put them right here, right now. It's not nearly as straightforward as you might think. And we will go inside the inner sanctum that is Mission Control to learn how a handful of men and women, most of them just out of college, made this mission possible. This podcast is a production of iHeartRadio and Tradecraft Studios. Executive producers, Ash Sorohia and Scott Bernstein. In association with High Five Content and executive producer, Andrew Jacobs. Amazing research and production assistance by associate producers, Brianne Shosa and Natalie Robamed. Our incredible editor is Bill Lance. Original music by Henry Benoit. The experts who contributed to this episode were Apollo 11 astronaut Jim Lovell, and Andy Aldrin. Special thanks to everyone at NASA who made this podcast possible, 
especially the incredible technological wizardry of consulting producer Ben Feist, who's responsible for organizing and cleaning the 11,000 hours of Mission Audio you're hearing selections from in this podcast. Licensing rights and clearances by Deborah Correa. Special thanks also to consultant Gina Delvac. This is a brand new podcast, and we're so excited to be sharing it with you. Help us spread it far and wide. Tell your friends, leave ratings and reviews, and chat about it on social media. Our hashtag is 9DIJ. We would love to hear what you think. New episodes come out each week, so be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Brandon Phipps. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next episode. Hello, from Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. We've always been intrigued by stories of disappearances, whether it's a fraudster from the 17th century who kept evading the authorities or a novelist who taunted the Nazis and faked her own death. We all want to know what happened next. To find out, listen to Womanica on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.